This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kevin DeLeon, California State Senator and California Democratic Party nominee for the United States Senate. Thanks for coming on to the show and congrats on both making it to the general election and earning the endorsement of the party. Well, thank you, Jordan. And it's, uh, it's a real honor uh, to, uh, to be on with you today um, and have an opportunity to uh, uh, speak to uh, so many folks uh, throughout the country. So uh, thank you very much for the invitation. I really do appreciate it. And we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Now, Senator, you are challenging incumbent Democrat Diane Feinstein, who has served in public office since 1970. What made you choose to do so? Well, Jordan, I think it's time that, that California has a, a new voice, a, a voice of change a different voice, a voice that's reflective of today's California, not the California of 50 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, things have changed so dramatically uh, in, in, in our state as well as our country. And the challenges that we're facing are unlike anything we've ever seen before in our modern political history. Um, I don't think that we need leaders uh, in Washington that will plead patience or complacency or uh, be passive about resisting uh, a man who occupies a White House today that is doing everything within his power to uh, undo the incredible progressive gains that we have uh, accomplished so far in the great state of California and in the United States of America. So I think it's time that we have a change, uh, a change for boldness, a change for leadership that has the courage of uh, its conviction and not someone who's going to be in the sidelines, but someone who's going to be in the front lines to move policies that will improve the human condition for, for all Americans, for all Californians, regardless of who you are, and regardless of who you love, regardless of the hue of your skin, regardless of which God you pray to, regardless of your legal status. And I think that change is now. Could you tell us about some of those policies of change you're promoting? Yes, absolutely. I, I think what is really critical uh, right now is that... Um, to provide real opportunities uh, for success uh, for young folks uh, in our country, in our state, getting access to uh, higher education, a four-year public university, a four-year private independent nonprofit uh, university, community college, um, uh, career technical education. And the reality is this, is that for those who are lucky enough to be admitted to a four-year university, uh, quite frankly, we should be making much more investments so we have much more enrollment slots um, because they've been so limited. But for those who are lucky, uh, when they do graduate, many of them uh, take many years to graduate because they have to uh, work a, a, a job or two uh, to make ends meet, uh, to meet the total cost of education. Because it's not just tuition. It's not just books, but it's something called life. And life is paying the, your rent, paying for food, uh, paying for the gas in your car or 
whether it's um, uh, public transportation, whether it's the metro subway, or whether it's a bus, or hitching a ride with somebody, whether you're, you're using a, a Lyft, Uber, or, or a taxi cab. You know, the reality is this, is that, you know, many young students right now have something called, like I said, life expenses. And that's why they have a job or two, and sometimes even three, to make ends meet. Because it's not just the high exorbitant cost of tuition and uh, books, uh, but it's life itself. And that causes folks to graduate five, six, even seven years, especially if you are a single mother or you have a family. So when you do graduate eventually, you have a mountain of debt. That mountain of debt is being carried on your shoulders well into your 30s as well as 40s. And with a huge crisis right now with regards to housing, displacements, gentrification, these factors that are really impacting our communities. If you have a mountain of debt well into your 30s paying both principal as well as interest, it's almost uh, impossible to buy a home, a townhome, a, a co-op, uh, a condominium, whatever it is, you know, to put a roof over your head. And these are big issues that many uh, millennials and uh, just young folks in general are, are facing. So this is something that I want to really, you know, change the national conversation because quite frankly, we spend over 50 cents uh, on every federal discretionary dollars on the U.S. military. We should be investing on the greatest asset that the United States of America has, um, our human capital. That is young men and women and returning adults who want to get uh, uh, more, who want to receive more education. We should be making those investments. And that's why we have to change the national conversation. And it starts in Washington. Senator, let's talk about some of those spending bills, those appropriations bills. One of the biggest votes that Dianne Feinstein made in line with Donald Trump was her vote in favor of the fiscal appropriations bill that did not include a Clean Dream Act or even protections for DACA recipients, despite immigration activists lobbying hard for such measures. That was when the Democrats for a short period of time managed to shut down the government before caving to the GOP appropriations bill. Would you have voted the same way as Feinstein if you had been in her position? No, I wouldn't have, Jordan, because that, that short-lived amount of power that the Democrats uh, had in their hands uh, lasted about maybe 48 hours um, at the most. And uh, right now, obviously, there's a mathematical challenge in, in Washington um, in terms of uh, who's in power, who's not, and how the Republicans exercise that power. Um, but for a very short period of time, Democrats had uh, a very strong hand and they had the power in their hands to dictate the terms to negotiate and force uh, the congressional leaders, both Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, as well as obviously the president, uh, Donald Trump, to the table to uh, give a real opportunity for these young men and women who know no other country but the United States of America. And I can tell you this, that California has the largest number of dreamers uh, in the entire nation. And these are young men and women, as, as you all know very well, uh, who came here at a very, very young age, um, who know no other country, who pledge their allegiance to the red, white, and blue, who will be the uh, future entrepreneurs, the coders, the engineers, the lawyers, the politicians, the artists, the designers, architects, and so forth. Uh, yet they're in legal limbo. And the politics being played with the dreamers is, is quite frankly grotesque because we have seen uh, survey after survey um, across the political spectrum 
across every uh, ethnic um, uh, uh, community that there is uniform support for for dreamers. Yet we see that the Republicans are holding a strong hand uh, to extract uh, more concessions out of Democrats. And I think that we lost a real opportunity uh, to exercise power and to demonstrate and send a very clear message to the Republicans that our values are very strong and we will do everything within our power to fight uh, for the values that we believe in. And I think it was a, it was a blown opportunity. Senator, let's talk more about immigration. You are one of two non-incumbent Senate nominees this year who supports abolishing ICE. Why is that so? Well, this is a the very interesting, you know, uh, uh, question. And I'll, I'll say this, Jordan. That's why I think that we have to be strong on this issue because the senator, the senior senator uh, uh, incumbent, obviously helped uh, create ICE uh, with her vote in the wake of 9-11 with the National Security Act and therefore shortly thereafter uh, the Patriot Act. And because of 9-11 and the horrific tragedy of these terrorists who struck on American soil and, and killed American lives, the overall goal, objective, focus was to make sure that we protect you know, Americans on American soil and that we create an, an agency uh, through the National Security Act that would focus on uh, domestic terrorists, people who pose a threat to Americans, um, on cyber, you know, sex pedophiles, on human traffickers, on, on gun traffickers, on really violent uh, criminal felons, um, folks who may be from other parts of the world, whether they be from Ireland, China, Mexico, or, or elsewhere. The focus of ICE was never on mothers and fathers who have been here 10, 15, 20, 25 years who pledged their allegiance to red, white, and blue and through no fault of their own have not been able to normalize their legal status because of a lack of uh, leadership in Washington uh, to do the right thing and move forward with sensible uh, uh, immigration reform. It was never to focus on, on mothers who are selling uh, tamales on a street corner or someone uh, selling oranges off an exit ramp uh, from a, on a freeway. And what we have witnessed with ICE is that ICE has been weaponized and has become a, a political extension of this White House. And that's why, uh, whether folks want to call it abolish ICE, dismantle ICE, uh, reorganize ICE, defang it by withholding you know, uh, uh, its budget dollars, um, because I can tell you this, Jordan, this is not new. There have always been reorganization, uh, dismantling of uh, federal agencies in Washington, D.C. It's not a new or innovative or uh, that provocative of an idea. It's actually quite common. And when Republicans you know, hear about you know, abolishing ICE and they right away say things, and they have said it, like uh, Democrats want open borders, uh, I haven't heard one single Democrat, including myself, ever advocate for open borders. When Republicans say that, that is an outright, you know, myth, uh, mistruth, which is a, a very nice diplomatic way of saying, you're lying. You're misleading the country. Um, but when you have a rogue police agency that uh, is no longer fulfilling their mission, but now have been weaponized uh, and politicized, 
uh, by this president, uh, by the current Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, by Stephen Miller, um, who is probably the intellectual author of so many of the anti-immigrant animus that comes out of the White House today, it is time to, to dismantle this operation because you have rogue agents now and not focusing on, on the people they should be focusing on, uh, terrorists, uh, cyber sex pedophiles, human and, and gun traffickers, but, but again, mothers and fathers who have been here 10, 15, 20, 25 years. It almost sounds like a Kafka novel in that, you know, it's almost Twilight Zone-ish like. Um, they haven't been able to legalize their status because you have a Congress uh, who's like Abbott and Costello. You know, they don't know who's on first base. They don't know who's on second base. They're pointing fingers at each other. And they always, but they do come together to, to fault and blame and scapegoat immigrants for every uh, economic, social, and political ill. And I think that's why, you know, folks want leaders that carry the courage of their convictions, who call it like it is, you know. When you have weak politicians who quickly uh, uh, blame others because of the demise of the economy or because uh, perhaps you know, coal miners are, are, are losing their jobs in mass because um, folks are not you know, consuming coal any longer uh, or less so uh, domestically as well internationally, then they have to blame somebody you know, for high unemployment, underemployment, um, and they end up blaming immigrants. That's not bringing this country together. That's tearing this country apart at the seams based on, uh, uh, based on lies, quite frankly. Senator, a major concern among immigration activists is the hijacking of the Abolish ICE movement by establishment politicians, a distortion of the background of the movement which originates with sentiments like Not One More, an activist slogan meant to bring awareness to the inherent cruelty of deportation, how no human is illegal, but rather individuals, particularly people of color, are criminalized and made deportable, a process that began with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Beforehand, undocumented status was not criminalized, and detention and deportation were not under federal jurisdiction or even considered constitutional. Neither practice is even mentioned in the Constitution. How will you stay accountable to these immigrant activists, to these undocumented activists, and dismantle not just one agency, but a white supremacist immigration system designed to subjugate people of color? Well, I, I can tell you this, Jordan, that we have always been a nation of immigrants. Um, and the reality is, is that we will always continue to be a nation of immigrants. That's what makes America the, the greatest country on planet Earth. It's a beautiful mosaic. It's an amazing tapestry. There's so many different hues from all over the world, whether, you know, you're a few generations removed from a Scandinavian country or the UK or France or, or Germany or elsewhere, or whether, um, you've been here, you know, for, uh, a century. Uh, from Mexico, or you're newly arrived from Central America, or from Asia, or, or African countries. That is the strength of who we are, uh, that diversity, that inclusivity. I think what is required in Washington is, is a real uh, leadership to forge ahead with immigration reform. Because if you're talking about dreamers, those who, who have TPS, Temporary Protective Status, if you're talking about individuals who are seeking political asylum, who are being, de being denied that opportunity before an administrative uh, uh, immigration judge, if you're talking about folks who are neither TPS or uh, dreamers, but who've been paying their taxes, obeying our laws, 
and who have been here, like I've said repeatedly, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and have yet to normalize their legal status because you have a Congress. Uh, and quite frankly, there's plenty of blame uh, to be assigned uh, across the political spectrum in Washington. Um, you need immigration reform, and it has to be done. There's no uh, 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 ifs or buts about it. You can't piecemeal your way through, well, let's give a temporary extension to the dreamers, um, but we'll deport their mothers and their fathers. That makes no sense. Well, those who are seeking political asylum because of violence from Central America, um, who are under TPS status, well, we're going to take it away from them and uh, let them know ahead of time they got one year to get their act together and then they're going to be deportable. Only for them to go back to a native country, if they do go back to a native country, uh, uh, to be victims of violence. Uh, we have seen this on numerous occasions. We have a broken, uh, dysfunctional immigration system. And quite frankly, what you're referring to uh, in, in your remarks is that, obviously, Donald Trump prefers uh, folks from certain parts of the world as opposed to others. And in this case, he made reference to a Scandinavian country, a country... Uh, uh, that's a very fine country, uh, Norway. Um, but I don't know, Jordan, if you know a lot of Norwegians. Um, I don't think I've ever met a Norwegian in the United States of America. And uh, I think there's a reason why. We don't have a lot of Norwegians coming to the United States of America because uh, it's, uh, my understanding, it's they got a pretty good life uh, in Norway. Um, and interestingly, uh, factually, uh, the, the one immigrant group uh, worldwide that has the highest educational attainment are these individuals from a country in Africa. Nigerian immigrants to the United States of America have the highest educational attainment than any other uh, immigrant from any other part of the world. You know, and, and perhaps it's not viewed that way because of the hue of their skin uh, and they don't look like what Donald Trump believes or Steve Miller or uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, or Chris Kobach believes, you know, what an immigrant should look like uh, and what part of the world they should be part of, you know. And that sort of grotesque, you know, nationalistic or racist, you know, perspective uh, on, on, on immigration uh, has really uh, tainted uh, this issue. I, I can tell you this from personal experience. We had this happen in California uh, with Proposition 187. And I try to tell my, my friends, my colleagues who are Republicans, uh, don't go down this road because you may get uh, a, a short-term victory, a pyrrhic victory, but it's a pyrrhic victory. It comes at a very high cost because in the long run, it doesn't end up well for you. It does not end up well for you. So something I think this connects to is foreign policy, where Democrats are often criticized for either having no position or essentially the Republican-like position. How would you as a senator hope to dismantle U.S. imperialism and push the Democratic Party to adopt a truly humane foreign policy perspective? Well, I, I, you know, that, that's a very good question. And I, I think uh, uh, what is happening today, and, and let me try to narrow that down a little bit into our own Western Hemisphere with regards to um, our foreign policy or a lack thereof, a, a coherent foreign policy uh, that the United States has had with many nations within our own Western Hemisphere, whether it be Mexico or whether it be Central America, uh, whether we're dealing with issues that um, 
that we share, that are real critical issues, that are real issues. The issue of human trafficking, the issue of, of, of gun trafficking, uh, the issue of uh, immigration, uh, whether it's lawful or not, to the United States. The vast majority of weapons um, that are in the possession of drug cartel members uh, in Mexico and in Central America and elsewhere uh, originate from the United States. So we have immigration, but a different sort, uh, from the United States north going to the south, of high-powered uh, assault weapons, long guns, shotguns, uh, handguns, ammunition. And, and going back with regards to foreign policy, obviously, uh, whether they've been coup attempts, uh, whether there have been attempts to undermine you know, uh, certain Central American uh, nations, certain South American nations, and, and as a result, we've had uh, either dictators or, or strong men that never helped cultivate uh, strong democratic institutions, whether it be the executive branch, the judicial branch, uh, whether it be the legislative branch, the National Congress in those respective countries, uh, when they, you have very weak institutions and therefore uh, systemic corruption uh, that doesn't allow um, everyday citizens from those respective countries to have hope and opportunity to succeed and therefore no uh, desire to, to immigrate to another country in this case, the United States of America. Sadly, that was not the case with our U.S. foreign policy. Our U.S. foreign policy was dedicated, in, in many instances, in assassinating and undermining uh, and, and cultivating and sustaining very weak democratic institutions. And therefore, hence, large immigration uh, uh, patterns uh, to the United States. Um, had we really had a coherent, strong, uh, democratic, um, supportive of foreign policy, uh, you wouldn't have so many folks immigrating to the United States, especially from the Western Hemisphere or other Caribbean nations, uh, because the desire uh, to immigrate uh, would be uh, very, very low unless they're coming to visit as tourists, which we do get, you know, but uh, folks have an incentive to go back to their native countries that they love, where they grew up. Uh, uh, but again, the U.S. foreign policy, you know, has really um, uh, uh, contributed greatly uh, to these immigration patterns. And this is something that's not talked about often. Uh, folks can try to be revisionists of uh, world political history, you know, but our State Department obviously has played a huge role uh, in these patterns uh, throughout the world. Um, interventions in both the Iraq uh, as well as Afghanistan, um, we have spent to date... Uh, Jordan, $6 trillion in these two wars. $6 trillion that should have been spent on debt-free college education. So when someone talks about we don't have money to deal with the issue of tuition and books for students throughout the country, you know, I say, quite frankly, and I say this respectfully, you know, I say that that's BS because we're still spending to date $6 trillion principal and interest on two foreign interventions that to date have not made America safer. It surely has not made the Middle East a region that's safer, uh, that's more democratic, uh, that is um, an area that's cultivating institutions that is openly transparent and accountable uh, to uh, their own citizens. That has not been the case. 
and it has been, quite frankly, a disaster. That's why the decisions and the votes that you take in Washington, D.C. are highly consequential. And a comparison that, that I would like to make, because it's a factual uh, comparison, is that the senior senator from California voted for these two wars, both Afghanistan as well as Iraq. And the region is not safer. In fact, it's less stable than ever before. And the ones who are going to be uh, footing that bill will be millennials. Millennials will be carrying that price tag in terms of the principal as well as interest. And that's why the votes that you take on behalf of your citizens, your constituents, is absolutely critical. And that's why I believe that she's been uh, woefully disconnected to the realities of what California is today. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, millennial politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. In terms of foreign policy, both the Democratic and Republican parties are very much anti-Palestinian. Not a single Democrat is really willing to go against the right-wing agenda on this issue, at least no Democrats in Congress. What do you believe is the situation here? Do you agree with the UN assessment of Israeli occupations and the massacre of Palestinians, particularly unarmed protesters, by the Israeli military force? Jordan, I've had an opportunity to actually travel uh, only once, unfortunately. I'd like to do uh, more so to uh, Israel. And um, I didn't have an opportunity to go into either the Gaza Strip or, or to Ramallah. Um, I've always been open in public uh, since day one that I do believe in a, a, a two-state solution. Um, but I do believe also, too, that the current uh, leader of Israel, uh, uh, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu is uh, undermining any potential process to land a deal of peace uh, for uh, this region. With the continued uh, engagement with very far right-wing ideologues uh, uh, within the Knesset, it has not opened up an opportunity uh, for, for peace. Uh, this is not a military solution. This is a political solution. And political solutions are often are much harder than a military solution. And that's why when it breaks down, people resort viscerally, emotionally uh, to uh, military means. Uh, it, it is sad. It's unfortunate. 
uh, what is happening uh, uh, in the region. Um, but ultimately, we have to force both sides to get to the table because if not, um, the atrocities will continue uh, to uh, increase uh, in that region uh, between the Palestinians and the is- Israelis. Senator, we discussed earlier Dianne Feinstein's refusal to resist the Trump agenda. Overall, Feinstein votes with Donald Trump a quarter of the time. To me, her most notable lack of resistance has been with Trump's cabinet and judicial nominees. While she did vote against Jeff Sessions, Betsy DeVos, and Tom Price, where the Democratic conference actually stood together for once, she also voted for Christopher Wray, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, and James Mattis, And to be clear, she was not alone. Senate Democrats from red and blue states alike have often joined the GOP in confirming Trump's cabinet and judicial nominees, which is no excuse and more so speaks to massive problems within the party. Would you see yourself doing the same as a U.S. senator? Well, let me tell you this, Jordan, is that I won't speak for other U.S. senators um, who made their decision to vote the way they voted. Uh, I, I don't know them. Uh, I, I don't know their, their, their thinking. I wasn't privy to it. Now, I'll only speak for California. I identified this president as a very clear and present danger to California's economic prosperity, to our progressive values, and to our people. And that's why I made the decision that I would lead, and not just lead, uh, for resistance sake, but lead the resistance with real results uh, that are deliverable to the people of California. Um, When you are voting 25% of the time with Trump, uh, when you are voting 60% for Trump's federal judge nominees, nominees who are young with limited experience, and there's no correlation with regards to being young and not being a good federal judge, but he is purposefully seeking folks who are young with limited court experience, but who are ideologically rigid in their thinking because he knows that they will stay on the bench for a lifetime, 30, 40, 50 years of a lifetime. These are lifetime appointments. When you're voting 60% uh, to approve uh, Donald Trump's federal judges who have a lifetime appointment, that shows the gross disconnection that you have to the realities of what is happening on the ground. When you have people who are going to be serving on the bench and also in the cabinet, as you stated, 25% of the folks uh, 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 she has voted for, who will seek to dismantle our voting rights, our civil rights, rights for workers, rights for women, rights for our LGBTQIA community, um, our environmental laws, that shows you the gross disconnection. And another distinction here is the U.S. Supreme Court uh, nominee that's before the U.S. Senate, and specifically the Senate Judiciary Committee, which she is a senior member of, Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh did not have to be before the U.S. Supreme Court. And if he is approved, which... It looks like, you know, they may have the numbers, you know, the Republicans. If he is approved, he promises to be an individual who will undermine all the sacred progressive laws that we hold dear uh, in the United States of America. 
Kavanaugh comes from the D.C. Court of Appeals. That is that's commonly known as the farm club for the U.S. Supreme Court. Whoever's on the D.C. Court of Appeals will always have an opportunity to be nominated to a U.S. Supreme Court uh, position. Many Democrats were warned, do not vote for him because he could potentially be a U.S. Supreme Court nominee in the future. And you did have Democrats who heeded that warning, such as then uh, uh, Senator Barbara Boxer, Harry Reid from Nevada, uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, you had uh, the late Ted Kennedy. You also had uh, then Massachusetts Senator and Secretary, later Secretary of State uh, John Kerry. You had Hillary Clinton, you know, a Senator from New York. They all voted no on cloture. Cloture meaning voting to give him the right to have a vote on the U.S. Senate floor. They all agree that we have to stop him now because if you don't, he will pass on the U.S. Senate floor. And they all voted no. And the Republicans needed a handful of Democrats to acquiesce to their request. And the individual who stood up and voted aye for him to have a vote was the senior senator from California. And that shows a gross negligence in the strategic vision or lack thereof of what the consequences could possibly be in the future. And who is before the U.S. Supreme Court? I should say who is before the U.S. Senate today? Kavanaugh. And it didn't have to be that way if you had a handful of Democrats who played ball with the Republicans. And you cannot play ball with Republicans who have a very clear agenda to dismantle the federal government as we know today, to throw us back into the 50s, into the 40s. And, and, and that's why having a strategic vision and not just being there for votes, but leading you know, with the courage of your conviction uh, is absolutely critical, not just for California, but for the rest of the nation. So, Senator, my last question, your state is the largest in the nation in terms of population. Something that we have seen members of Congress fail to do is stay connected with their constituents. How would you stay connected with your constituents? I'm, I'm a, a born and raised Californian. I, I love California. Um, obviously, I'm biased. There's a lot of incredible uh, uh, states throughout the country. Um, but I love my state, you know, and I've always said that it is not Northern California versus Southern California or vice versa. It's not the Central Coast versus the Central Valley. It's, it's one California, uh, one vision uh, to move policies that improve the human condition for all Californians. To me, it doesn't make a difference if you voted for Bernie Sanders or if you voted for Hillary Clinton or even if you voted for Donald Trump. You, our policies in terms of Medicare for all, not Medicare for some sensible, comprehensive immigration reform, climate change, environmental laws, uh, as well as making sure we eliminate debt from college students who will be drowning in a mountain of debt, interest in, uh, 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 in the principal well into their 30s and, and most likely into their 40s. These are sensible policies that improve the human condition for all Californians, for all Americans across the political spectrum. Um, I'm excited, you know, to have this opportunity and to come back home to California on a, a, a weekly basis, whether we do town hall internets, uh, whether we actually physically show up in Southern Cal and Central Valley, Northern Cal, uh, I'm up for it. And what's been so exciting for me is, is, is rolling up my sleeves 
um, and, and traveling up and down the state of California and, and, and meeting with everyday voters. Um, that's to me is the most exciting thing because it's the beauty of meeting people, uh, understanding and feeling their pain, uh, their, their hopes, their desires, their fears, their anxieties. And that's why, you know, political uh, representation is absolutely critical because you need politicians across this political spectrum who will listen to the folks' fear, their anxiety, their panic, and understand it, as opposed to find the lowest common denominator and say, I know why you're economically uh, 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 panicking. Because those people who look different, who talk different, who act different, it's because of them you lost your house. It's because of them you got divorced. It's because of them you lost your job, you lost your kids. That's not America. America is much better than that. We have witnessed in our own history books, whether it's in high school or whether it was in college, when we read about the Executive Order 9066, the internment of Japanese Americans, or what you refer to the Chinese Exclusion Act, which originated here in California. We have witnessed Operation Wetback, Jim Crow laws. All of this is we read about in history books. We never thought in our wildest dreams that in the year 2018 that we would actually be witnessing it, experiencing it, in real time. And that's why what makes California so special is that the youngest child of a single immigrant mother with a third grade education can grow up to be the leader of the California State Senate and now an actual candidate in the top two. Only two candidates out of a field of 32 could be in the top two in the U.S. Senate race against a 50-year uh, politician, billionaire. That's what makes California such a magical place. And that's why I'm honored to, to have this opportunity to, 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 to speak with you and to share my thoughts and views and, and with, uh, uh, your, uh, with your audience, Jordan. And um, I'm really, I really am honored. And I can tell you this. If we're going to be successful come November 6th, the millennial vote has to play must play a vital, critical role. I know that. And I'm not naive to that. Millennials, whether you're in college, non-college, don't make a difference across the board. Whether you're white, you're Latino, you're African-American, you're Asian-American, you're racially mixed, does make a difference. We're all Americans and we're all Californians. You have an opportunity to play a critical voice. And it's no wonder that sometimes, you know, not sometimes, a lot of times that Millennials are just turned off to the politics because they look at the reflection of the Congress and it doesn't look like them. And you surely don't have folks who are espousing, you know, the policies that they are passionate about. But we have this opportunity today. And that's why I'd be honored uh, to have the consideration of, of those who, who, who listen to you, Jordan, to have their support come November 6th. Well, we hope you get that support and we wish you the best of luck on your campaign. No, thank you so much. And, and more than happy to do this again. Anytime you let me know. Yes, we'd love to get you back on the podcast after you win in November. Now, to our listeners, as always, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, to see our awesome merch. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to hear more interviews with great candidates like Senator Kevin DeLeon. Thanks for listening.